grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Continue our trek through this helpful, encouraging, and exhorting letter from Paul to his son in the faith, his true child in the faith, Titus. I almost called Joel this afternoon and said, listen, we're going to have to do a singspiration tonight because I can't talk. But then I remembered we have mics, so, you know, we're good. I'll just talk and they'll turn me up and if you can't hear me, take a nap. It'll be fine. Titus 2, as we work our way through this book, we've learned so much about how God has called us through salvation into a school of grace, meaning he has enrolled us as he has redeemed us into his project, into his classroom, by which he teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, as he tells us in 2.11, and how then to turn from those things to be living godly and self-controlled and upright lives for his glory and his purposes so that we would be zealous for good works, a people for his own possession. All of this is God's grace at work in us. The clear teaching of the New Testament and of this letter is not that we do these good things so as to earn grace, which is backwards in every other religion outside of biblical Christianity that somehow you, by your good deeds, accomplish and earn God's kindness and favor and namely the forgiveness of your sins. Biblical Christianity has that entirely the, the other way, which is God's grace comes upon you, rescues you, saves you, and because of his grace, you now serve him. You now grow in godliness and likeness to him. And so this is the, the key part of the, or the key message of the letter to Titus. He's telling him, Paul's instructing him in this school of grace that he passes it on to the churches of, of Crete. And a key part in this school of grace is that you would have a model of sound doctrine and good works. And so he says that right away in chapter one that the elders in the local churches are to be these models of sound doctrine and godly living. And within the body of Christ, that's God's design for the growth of the church. You have to be well taught in the truth, but you also have to have living examples of the truth to, to see what it looks like. It's not just classroom instruction. It's not just knowledge in your head of what this should look like, but it's the, the power of that example lived out in front of you in real lives, in, in real people that you know and can test whether or not doctrine has impacted life. And we know the, the power of, of an example in so many categories of life, right? Uh, you know the, the humorous side of these things where uh, the example of, of a parent impacts a child and they do strange things because their parents do strange things. It's just how it goes. We all have that in our family. We also know the power of it in a much more serious and sober and, and good way and, and often even bad ways, the power of example to shape a life. The story is told of, of Calvin Coolidge in 1924. He became the 30th president of the United States and he had kind of worked his way up into the presidency in kind of the working class. And so he had some, uh, some friends and acquaintances uh, back from his Vermont days who were from the working class and not quite as refined as the Washington elites. And they came to visit him in the White House and have a dinner with their old buddy who now was the president. And uh, these, these Vermont working class people were concerned that they would come into the White House dinner and, you know, make a, a mockery of themselves, you know, not having the right manners. And so they decided that the safest thing to do was just to do whatever the president did. You know, they'll just follow his example. So if he does something, we'll do that and we'll be safe, right? So they thought that's how it was going to happen. And all was going fine throughout dinner. They, they did what he did and everything was good until the coffee was served. And Coolidge took the coffee and he, he poured some into his saucer that was holding his cup. And so all the guests from Vermont did the same thing. And, and the president added a little sugar and a little cream. And so they did the same thing because they were following his example. And then he, he leaned over, he took the saucer, and he put it on the floor for the cat to drink. <laughs> now they didn't know what to do. This is an illustration of the power of example. And we know that power in our own experience. I was just thinking as we were singing and thinking through my introduction and how so often when we talk about example, a negative one is given as uh, how this ruined someone else. And 
as I was reminding and reminiscing just a few minutes ago of all the examples I've had in my life of men who have faithfully clung to the truth for their whole life. And you hear so often of people who fall away and impact and, and suck others away. And I have had a, a litany, a parade of faithful men impact my life. Guys like Ben Strobane and Chuck Phelps and Ken Davies and Mark Young, uh, Mark Stupka. Guys, you don't know. You, you would have no idea who they are. But these men have had huge impact upon my life. And not just in the moment of when I was under their instruction and, and under their influence, but because they have maintained and consistently pursued after the Lord until many of them, their dying breath, praise God for faithful, consistent, godly examples in the church. And we need that. God's good design in the church is that sound doctrine is to be taught along with the, the type of life that accords with that sound doctrine. And that's a big part of what Paul is telling Titus to, to kind of inculcate into the culture of the churches of Crete because they are an unruly lot. Remember that in, in chapter one, he quotes one of the Cretan authors and, and they're lazy and gluttonous people. They, they need to be instructed how the gospel changes them. And so Paul is instructing Titus, listen, in chapter one, you need elders in every town who will hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, but that's not enough. In fact, that comes second in the list. The first thing in the list is that they have lives that are exemplary in godliness, that they model the things they're about to teach and hold to. They're not just men who, who know the system of sound doctrine, who can, can quote the, the 10 major doctrines that, that the church needs to know and understand and hold fast to and can defend it in a debate, but they need to be men whose lives are shaped by that doctrine whose lives from their thinking to their loving to their choosing to their words to their interactions are all shaped in godly character by sound doctrine. And then in chapter 2, as Paul keeps kind of uh, laying this out for Titus, he, he tells him that you need to teach in different life situations what sound doctrine should look like in practice. And so he says in verse 1, teach that which accords with sound doctrine. And he goes to older men and then to older women and then to younger women and then in our text for tonight to younger men. He says to them, listen, if you're gonna hold the sound doctrine, Titus, you need to instruct them what that looks like, not just in their head, but in their life. Sound doctrine producing then sound living. And, and he says that that example of sound living must be, uh, you must be the tip of the spear of that, Titus. You need to be the example that they see of sound living shaped by sound doctrine. Titus 2, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 to kind of get our bearings before we jump into verses 7 through 8. So Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul is essentially saying to Titus to lead the church, you need to put forward an example that is worth following. You need to live a life that matches your teaching so that the church knows what to follow. This example has to be of a certain quality if it's gonna bolster and hold up the message of the gospel and the ministry of the church. It can't just be any example because in reality, leaders are always giving an example. They're always making an impression. They're always influencing those who follow. And it needs to be, Paul says, an example of a certain quality, of a certain content. I want to just break down our study of these two verses with, with three headings. The first is the call to this example, the call to this example. That's in verse 7. In the middle of instructing Titus how he's to, 
to teach younger men how to live in accord with sound doctrine, he, he says, urge them to be self-controlled. Press it upon their soul. Let them know they, they have an area in which they are prone to be weak, an area in which they're, they're prone to, to not live in accord with the truth. And so you need to call them to self-control. But now in, se- in verse 7 he says, and you need to live a life that is exhibit A of that self-control. Your life needs to be the model for them to follow. So in verse 7, tell them. In verse, or in verse 6, tell them. In verse 7, show them. Let them know what it looks like. Titus is actually in this group. I think Pastor Larry covered this well when he taught on this, you know, like an eon ago. You probably forgot what he said, but he was telling you that, that this younger men category in this culture is basically anyone under 60. And so Titus is in that group. Paul is not. He's probably in his mid-60s at this point of writing this letter. And Titus is, is probably somewhere in his low to mid-30s. We're guessing, but we think he's younger than Timothy because Timothy is called a son in the faith, and Titus is called a true child, and it's a step down in age from a son. And so he's probably, I mean, we're guessing, I get that, but he's probably in some way younger than Timothy, at least in age or even in maturity of faith. And here Paul is is saying to Titus, you need to have a life that matches your message. Your call to your peers cannot be a call that you're still trying to figure out. Your call to your peers needs to be a call that you put on display in every aspect of life. And so the urging of verse 6 is to be supported by the example of verse 7. Call them to it in verse 6. Show them in verses 7 and 8. Paul tells Titus that he has to do that in all respects, that he has to be a model of this self-control in all respects. And and the Greek here, if you have a NASB, it's a different way that this is put together, I think. I might be wrong about that. I don't remember exactly. I looked at it, but I don't remember. But there's, there's different ways to take the beginning of verse 7. So the, the start of verse 7 in the Greek is in all respects. And it's an it's a ongoing sentence from 6 to 8. And so some think that in all respects is the self-control of verse 6. Others think that it is the, the example that Titus is to set. Either way, you essentially end up in the same place. That in everything... You, Titus, are to be an example to them of the self-control that they're to have in everything. So be that example for them. It's a present tense verb, that showing. It's, it's Paul saying to him, this is not a one-time display. This is not show and tell of a spiritual variety in which you say to them, be self-controlled. And then you say, look, here's what it means to be self-controlled. And then you walk away and do everything else out of self with a lack of self-control. No, it's an ongoing, constant display of the grace of God at work in you to produce an example of self-control. And it's a call, not just to Titus, but to all of the elders, all of the shepherds in the churches of Crete. Titus is to, like I said, be the tip of the spear. He's to lead the way for the men who are leading the way. He's to show them how this is to work. He's to, to be the example they follow that others then follow them. And this, as you know, is just naturally how it works. The, the men in the church family are indelibly marked by those who lead them. That's just how it works. And that's not an overnight deal. That's not if you get a new leader that immediately has an indelible mark and they all change to fit him. No, it's over time. And in God's wisdom, it's multiplied by more than one. It's a multiplicity of men but they're stamped by those leaders. And so how the leaders go, the men in the church will go. And obviously speaking in generalities, but it's been proven over and over again. These elder shepherds are examples that cannot be avoided. And so what Paul says to Titus is show yourself how to be, show them how to be the right kind of Christian, self-controlled, producing good works in every category. And he says to Titus, listen, this is the reality. Step up to it. Don't avoid it. Don't, don't cower in the corner as though somehow you, you didn't sign up for this reality and you don't like being an example and you don't like living in a glass house and you don't like people in the church having access to your life. You don't like people looking at you to see what a good Christian should look like. And Paul basically says to Titus, just stop it. That You don't have that option. You're called by the grace and mercy of God to put this on display, to show it, to to prove it, 
to give them proof of the grace that's at work in you. And this is to be in all things. Titus is to show himself an example. It's not a, a selective runway show of, of selectable fashions that are you know, perfectly uh, and carefully selected and displayed as, as though they're fashionable trends of character. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fashionable thing right now for pastors to, to be uh, abundantly kind and, and to, be, uh, to not be um, cantankerous or, or in any way to, to come across as opposing anyone. That, that's a fashionable trend in, in pastoral philosophy right now, uh, to, be, uh, to be benevolent in all interactions. And absolutely, they should be kind and, and benevolent. But that's hip. That, that's the cool thing to do in evangelical churches right now. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying have, have a life that is so shaped by the truth of the word of God that has actual character produced by the actual grace of God that looks like Christ in all things. Don't put on a, a wax museum display of character that is perfectly put together to give the right impression because you know people are watching. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, have a life that's so transformed by the grace of God that others hear your teaching and see your living and are compelled to follow. They want the grace you have. They see the conformity to Christ in you, and they say, that is how I want my life to look. Notice also that this example is in all respects. No part of the shepherd's life is left out of the command to Titus. Everything he does, everything he says, everything he thinks, every place he goes, every thing he partakes of, all of it is to be a model of good works for those who are in his spiritual care, every use of time, every text message, every email, every phone call, every part of his life is to be a display of the grace of God at work in him to produce this spiritual maturity. And this model is like a, a mold. It's, it's the word for type. It's a, a mold that's to press down and and form something else in its image, uh, you know, to come down upon a malleable surface and reproduce its image once it's pulled up. That, that's what a, an elder shepherd is to do. It's to, to press down and stamp another life. This is the, the essence of discipleship. This is what it means to, to have impact and influence in the church. This is what Titus 2 is all about. Older men uh, well, 2 Timothy 2, particularly older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women. This is what it looks like to press down upon their life and stamp them with yours. So to kind of extrapolate that, to, to say more about that, just think about the influences you have, your parenting, your grandparenting, your, your friendships, your relationships, your, uh, your conversation with those in your life. And think about your influence over them, whether you're in a position of teaching or of authority or not, you have impact. And ask yourself this question, do I want them to be what I am? Because that's essentially what you're doing. You're, you're pressing yourself upon them and, and wanting them to become what you are. And listen, that being said, there's lots of caveats. We get that. You're, you're still in process. You're not perfect. You're not glorified. You're still a work that needs to be pressed upon by the image of Christ, and you're still being conformed and transformed by the renewing of your mind, but you are having impact, and that influence within the body of Christ, the end of that ministry upon them is that they're going to look like you. Their life's going to be stamped by you. And the question then of discipleship is, is what I have worth pressing upon somebody else? Is who I am what I want those who follow me to be? This is a sobering, sobering question. This is what Paul calls Titus to do. This is what the Holy Spirit of God calls Titus to do. And it's fitting with the rest of the New Testament. This is not just a, a one-time deal where, you know, Paul says, Titus, you're a unique guy, and you've got unique skills, and you've got a unique spiritual maturity, and listen, you be the example. You're going to be prime-time uh, you know, spiritual maturity boy. And, you know, we're, you're going to be the superhero of spiritual maturity. We're going we're gonna to make icons and we're going to make a cartoon and you're going to be the guy, right? That's not what's going on here. This is all throughout the New Testament. So 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. This is Paul to, t to Timothy, his other son in the faith. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith, in, in other words, in everything, set them an example for life. Hebrews 13, verse 7, the author of Hebrews, as he tries to wrap things up and, and bring this life of faith to a conclusion with some practical exhortations, he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's a sobering, sobering verse for those who are teachers and leaders in the church. Your life is to be imitated. Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul says to the church in Philippi, and he, remember he's countering the, the dogs who are uh, toying with the truth. At the end of that chapter, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, find people like us and follow them. Don't, don't go after the people who are doing all kinds of damage to the truth. Live a life that's eternally minded. He goes on to say in verses 20 and 21, we're, we're not citizens of this world, but we have a citizenship in a heavenly kingdom in another world, and we live accordingly. Paul says, live like that as you see it in us. Do it. He doesn't just say, set your mind on heavenly things and figure it out. He says, set your mind on heavenly things like we do, like we have, and, and find others like us and do that. 1 Corinthians 4, he says to the church in Corinth, which quite a statement to say to them. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. As I'm being stamped by the character and the truth of Christ, you also be stamped by me. Remember in Acts 20 when, uh, when Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus, I think, right? And, and they're working through the reality of the sorrow that they probably won't ever see Paul again. He's going up to Jerusalem, and it's clear he's going to get arrested, and it's probably going to be the end of his life in ministry. And They're just burdened with that. And so he's, he's laying before them a, a defense of his ministry to them for the sake of the defense of the gospel and for an example to them. This is how you also should serve. Remember, as you get to the end, he, he gives that tremendous statement from the Lord Jesus not recorded in the Gospels, so glad it's recorded in Acts, where Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You remember that, right? So Paul, being with the elders, he could have just said, listen, guys, it's better for you. Jesus told you. It's better for you to give your lives to the work of the ministry than to receive whatever it is you would be after in the ministry. Jesus said it. Believe it. He could have just said that, and, and that's powerful, right? That's instructive and helpful. But he doesn't just say that. Before that, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He's talking about his ministry in Ephesus. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see the context of, of learning spiritual truth for Paul, and, and this is not always how he taught them. But his life was such that out of his life, he could say, remember how this happened? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the call to this example. Let's consider the content of this example. That's the second part of verse 7 into verse 8, the content of this example. This power of example is, is a, a power with specific content. You, you have to be the right kind of example and so his life is, is called by Paul to be exemplary in, in four specific areas in 7 and 8. The first is to be exemplary in good works. Show yourself in all respects to be a model, a type, a mold of good works. His life is to be filled with the, the gospel training him to produce good works. And as a minister of the gospel of Christ, he should then have life filled with the fruit of such gospel transformation. It's mildly disingenuous to stand before lost sinners and lay before them the glories of the gospel of Jesus and say to them, in the power of the resurrection, you can be freed from your slavery to sinfulness and, and the mastery that sin has over your soul, and, and you can be free to, to serve the Lord and to serve others and to know the joy of, of sacrificial love 
for God and for one another. And then to turn around from that pulpit and to be selfish and self-serving and demanding and, and to, to be all about your needs and wants. And I mean, how many preachers have you heard of, big-time preachers, and I, you know, these are anecdotes and probably a lot of gossip, but how many of these stories have you heard of big-time preachers who have these demands of, of what they have to have when they go and speak somewhere or how it has to go for them after they speak? And you know, they've got their list of things they need in the green room, and they've got their, their package of, of how much you have to pay them to come and preach in your church. And what is that? What is that? That is not an example of the gospel truth they claim to proclaim. How easy to speak these gospel truths and be unaffected by this gospel power. Paul will go on to say in verse 14 that this grace has so transformed us that we are completely changed so that we're now zealous for good works. We're no longer zealous for our own selfish desires, but being transformed by grace, a people for Christ's own possession, we now long to be useful for his service. We now long, like Paul, to give and give and give and give, no matter the cost, so that the work of God goes forward, others are blessed, and Christ is glorified. And so if we preach a gospel which offers salvation from that, and we ourselves do not show transformation in that way, we do not prop up the message of the gospel. We do not validate it and verify it with our lives. That's Paul's point to Titus. Is, listen, you, you can't just tell them to be self-controlled. You can't just give them the, the steps of denying self and putting aside the, the longings of your flesh. You, you can't just teach them the newness of Christ in Romans 6 and say, here's the truth, now go live it. No, you have to teach them that, and then you have to show it to them. You have to live it out in front of them so they can see a life that is, is purified by this grace and that is now zealous for good works. In other words, the call to be an elder shepherd in the body is a call to be an exhibit A of the power of the gospel. Your life is to be put on display of God's work and God's power to change a life and to make it useful and glorifying to him. That is humbling and frightening from a human perspective, but that is the call. The second is the content of this example is to be that of pure teaching. The ESV translates it as, in your teaching show integrity. It's a tricky phrase in the Greek to translate, but the word for integrity is, is the word for lacking anything which can corrupt you or, or by its disease can destroy something. It, it's the alpha primitive, it's the the negative on the front of the word, of the, using the alpha, to take away the meaning of the word. So you take that word without the alpha on it, and you find it in other places, like 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where Paul says that bad company corrupts, that's our word without the alpha, corrupts good morals. In other words, you, you might have good standards, good, good moral conduct standards that you're going to keep, but if you hang out with people who do not, Paul's clearly saying at some point they're going to have impact upon you and they're going to corrupt you. The, the leaven in the lump's going to finally get to you and your morals will be on the chopping block because of the company you keep. And Paul's saying to Titus, don't let your teaching have any element like that. Don't, don't let what you teach to the church have any element of corruption in it. So then I got thinking, well, what, what is that? What elements corrupt teaching in the church? And this could go almost a well, multitude of places, but I just started looking for that word in the New Testament, and I found a few places that were very, very helpful. The, the idea of corrupt, corruption and the corruption of the flesh. It's in Ephesians 4. You, you know that text so well, the, the new self and the old self. Put off the old self and put on the new self. The description of the old self in Ephesians 4.22 is that which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Corrupt through deceitful desires. And so I started thinking through how easy it is to teach and to lead, to desire positions of authority within the body of Christ for deceitful desires. 
desires that present themselves to be good desires, but underneath the surface are actually wrong desires. Desires that present themselves as, as though I, I want to help people, I want to bless people, I want to encourage people in their faith, but, but underneath the surface is actually I, I want to help people so that they make much of me. That kind of thought, and, and you, could, you could extrapolate that over all kinds of desires and, and motives of the heart in serving the body of Christ. That would be corrupting, right, to the example of an elder or of a shepherd, deceitful desires. First Timothy 6, Paul, speaking to, to Timothy, says, he's talking about false teachers and says that that false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved, that's our word corruption, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're depraved in mind, thinking that if they can put forward a godly example or they can put forward godly teaching, then they can get gain for themselves. And frankly, the American pastor is filled with this. And I'm in it, so I need to be careful, but it's filled with, with this longing for position, this longing for, for status so as to have some kind of personal gain. And the context here is, is financial, but there's more going on there in, in that word. It, it, any kind of personal self-serving gain is meant. And how easy it is to lead the church with the corruption of desire that somehow my leading, my example, my teaching will be for my own gain. Another text, 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 8, Paul says to Timothy again, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and John Bray's opposed Moses, so these men also oppose truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Well, how are they corrupted in mind? Well, they are never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They're led astray by their various passions. The truth becomes Plato in their system to accomplish their own purposes. They can never just land on the truth and say it and stand there, so help me God. They can't do that. Because the truth is a tool for them to accomplish something else. They're not servants of the truth. The truth is their servant. And they're corrupted in mind and they're disqualified regarding the faith. And Paul says to Titus, don't let that kind of thinking, that kind of pattern corrupt you. Don't let that in to your example in any way. Anything of the old flesh, anything of wrong motives, anything thinking that godliness is a means of temporal gain, anything in which your passions lead you astray. Don't let that corrupt your example. The third content of this example is dignity, he goes on to say. So don't let it be corrupted, your teaching, but also your example needs to be dignified. Dignified. This is not just speaking of the teaching, though it kind of reads that way in the ESV. It's, it's a, a, speak, a, a word um, modifying his whole ministry, his whole life as an elder shepherd. He's to be a model of dignity for them. He's to be marked by gravitas, marked by seriousness and sobriety, marked by understanding the, the worth and the value of that which he holds and that which he proclaims, understanding the worth and the value of the souls entrusted to his care by his good shepherd. His manner of ministry then is, is a reflection of the eternal seriousness of dealing with eternal truth and men's eternal souls. This word for dignified is used six times between 1 Timothy and Titus, only one time in the rest of the New Testament. You think Paul was trying to make a point to Timothy and Titus? Guys, have a serious ministry. Be sober about this. This is not playtime. This is not the pastoral playground in which you get to make a name for yourself and do the latest, craziest thing that you become the talk of the town and draw the crowd. This is not the time for you to be, to be elevated in the minds of people because of your, your amazing rhetorical skills or, 
or your ability to keep people entertained and tell good stories and, and impact people in some way with the truth. This is not what the ministry is about. The ministry is a serious and sober investment in eternal souls with God's eternal, unchangeable, always right and always relevant truth. By the way, this has nothing to do, this sobriety has nothing to do with a lack of joy. It has nothing to do with an unwillingness to laugh or joke or have fun or, or be light in certain moments. What it means is you, you know when to do that and when not to do that. You know what to joke about and what not to joke about. And you know the deathly seriousness of the realities of teaching and instructing others with the truth and of laying an example before them. The American evangelical church has believed that you can package eternal truth into frivolous gift bags and people will pick it up and take it with them and they'll be surprised at how great what it is they'll find inside and they'll be forever changed. But they don't understand that the the packaging minimizes the message, minimizes the seriousness and the importance of the message in the hearts of those who receive it. And it gets lost, frankly, in the packaging. And so they have all these these shows and entertainment-oriented draws to get crowds in the door, dim the lights in the house and turn on the lights on the stage and put on a good show and help people be Enjoy, to enjoy themselves in the gathering of the church. And they expect in, in the packaging of, of frivolous things to make eternal impact. But Paul says clearly in this text, listen, that lacks the gravitas needed for the message. It's become popular in the American church to use the phrase contextualization of the message which often is just code for worldliness. Yeah, you contextualize the message by understanding who you're talking to, where they're at in their understanding of the truth, what their background is, how they understand the very words you're saying. There is contextualization in that sense. You see it all throughout the book of Acts. Paul had a different message in Philippi, a different way of saying the same message, let me correct myself, in Philippi than he did in Athens. But it was the same message. And it was a clear proclamation of the truth. But we've been sold a bill of goods, starting, I think, with the seeker-sensitive movement, that you need to contextualize the truth. You need to contextualize God and his character. And and you need to appeal to people based on where they're at and what they want. And in doing that, you'll draw them in. And and then this bait and hook thing, you'll you'll get them in. And then you'll switch it. And then... They'll be hungry for the truth, and and then you'll have them, and it'll all work. Well, the seeker-sensitive movement uh, told us in, like, 2007 that that didn't work. They said that it was a system that was rife with error, and indeed it was. When we adopt the world's methods, we lose God's message every time. When we adopt the world's methods, we lose God's message every time. Time. And what I have found in the ministry of the church is that God's sheep are hungry for the truth. For crying out loud, you came back on a Sunday night on spring break week to hear more of the truth from a guy who doesn't have a voice. It has nothing to do with the person proclaiming the truth. Your heart hungers and thirsts for the truth and for righteousness. And you just want to be fed. And that's exactly what Jesus said about his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. This is the the content of the example of pastors and shepherds in the body. They are to proclaim with all seriousness and sobriety the whole counsel of God. I get more grief, and I did today. I got more grief today for how many times I said something about cutting the sermon short and landing the plane than I do for going long. And that's maybe just the people who are upset about going long don't talk to me. I get that. I understand. There's probably 30 of them for every one that says, listen, you can go as long as you want. But in Christ's church, people want the truth. They're willing to wait on lunch for 10 minutes if they can get more of the truth. It's a serious message worthy of a serious messenger. That's what Paul calls Titus to in verse 7. And then it's to 
Also, this example is to have the content of sound words. That's the last piece of content. Sound words, which cannot be condemned. The word for sound is the word we get our word hygiene from. So it's a, a, a word of, of uh, having uh, cleanliness and, and being fit. It's used in relationship to doctrine in verse 1, sound doctrine. Well, Paul's telling Titus to use speech, use words in your ministry which are, are hygienic. They're sound, they're, they're healthy, free from corruption. And he says, your example then in the church and in the community has to be marked by those healthy words which bolster the message of truth. The two must match. Your, your message and your mouth must be in harmony. Not, not just the, the content of what you're saying, but the words you use to say it needs to match with the seriousness of what you're doing. And this needs to be true in and out of the pulpit. There's argument, if you read the commentaries, is, is Paul talking to Titus about when he teaches or his life? And the answer is yes. Yes, everything. All that you are. Be an example of sound words which cannot be condemned. He's not to be crass or crude with his words. He has to resist the urge to use hip language that will shock the crowd and gain a hearing with the world. And again, this has been all the rage in the evangelical church for the last 20 years or so. And I, I haven't tracked recent trends, but in the late 2010s into the early, however you say that, the late 2007 to 2013-ish, let's just go with that. This is a big deal. And, and there was all kinds of pastors using all kinds of shocking language to look cool to the world and to gain a hearing with with all those who just had no concept of that which was moral or right or good. They would use curse words in their sermons. They would talk about all kinds of crass subjects. They would, they would lay before the church in mixed company things that are embarrassing to talk about between a husband and a wife. I mean, they just laid stuff out there that was crass and crude so that people would, would gawk, would want to hear, would, would tune in. What's the next crazy thing this crazy pastor is going to say? The most prominent example of this is Mark Driscoll of Mars, Hill's, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which has completely erupted like a volcano. That which brewed under the surface finally came boiling to the top, and that whole thing blew up under his ministry. And he was moved along in popularity by his shock jock approach to pastoring. And it drew a crowd, and it seemed effective. And Paul says clearly to Titus, don't do that. Don't do that. Mark should have read Titus. Don't do that. Have a ministry marked by dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. He says if you, if you use speech like that, listen, what you're going to do is you're going to give the world stones to legitimately throw at the church. And the world already hates the church. The world will already throw stones at the church. They don't need ammo for their slander gun. You don't need to give them bullets to shoot at us. So Paul says, don't let that be true of you, Titus. And then lastly and quickly, look at the contrast of this example. So the call, the content, and the contrast. That's in verse 8. He says there's a huge contrast between you and the opponents of the gospel. Listen, if, if you'll let this be the content of your character and of your example, then you will not be shamed, but your opponents will be. That's the contrast. If you don't have this character, you will be put to shame. You will be mocked by the world and in the church. You will minimize the message of the gospel you proclaim. But if you have that character, then the contrast is those who seek to mock you will be themselves ashamed. See, the godliness of the shepherd and the seriousness and the dignity by which he conducts his ministry will leave all of his opponents with nothing evil to say. It makes you think of Daniel in Daniel 6, doesn't it? When the satraps are, are looking for a way to corner Daniel and, and to find something wrong with him, as it pertains to the kingdom and, and how he operates in his governing role, and verse 3 says, they found nothing. There was nothing there. And so they determined that if they're going to have Daniel fall, they're going to have to 
creates something in relationship to his devotion to his God. Let that be said of all of us who lead in the church. If the world's going to take us down, make them take us down by our godliness, not our corruption, not our sinfulness. Notice how different that is from the false teachers that were on Crete, on this island with Titus. Paul says to them, they need to be silenced in chapter 1. Verse 15 and 16, he describes them as defiled and unbelieving who then corrupt everything else they come in contact with. He says their minds, in verse 16, and their consciences are defiled and they deny the God they claim by their works. So they, they claim him by their words, they deny him by their works. That's exactly what Paul is saying to Titus, don't do that. Don't be that guy who preaches one thing and lives another. Those guys are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, and they deserve the shame that comes to them. And so in a 180-degree contrast from them, Titus, be a model of good works with teaching that is not corrupt, with a life that's dignified and full of sound words which cannot be condemned. And notice then how the, the result of that is the upholding of the gospel through the messenger of the gospel. So the, the message is held up by the, the messenger. The, the messenger in his life becomes the clearest and surest proof of the message he proclaims. Like a, a guru medicine salesman of the Wild West rolling into town with his wagon of wares to sell to unsuspecting clients. Oh, take this next greatest elixir. It heals everything, and it's only $2. It will heal all that ails you. And he sells to them this wonderful elixir that supposedly heals all ills while he turns around and goes and takes the very medicine they're getting at their own pharmacy in town because he doesn't believe that which he is selling because he knows it doesn't work. That's essentially what an elder shepherd pastor who does not have a life shaped by the gospel yet still preaches the gospel is saying about the gospel. It's good for you. You need it. But it's not good for me. I need something else. Notice how Paul says in verse 8 that these opponents will have nothing evil to say about, what does he say, you? He's been talking to Titus this whole time. Does he say at the end of verse 8, listen, if you live this way, they'll have nothing evil to say about you. No, he says, I have nothing evil to say about us. He moves from personal to corporate, from singular to plural, and he does that because, listen, he's saying to Titus, your leadership sets an example. And if that example is marred by your own lack of gospel transformation and your own lack of, of all these qualities of character you should have, you don't just do damage to yourself, Titus. You don't just bring reproach upon you nor just upon the the other leaders in the body. No, all of us suffer. The body of Christ suffers when the shepherds of Christ deny the gospel of Christ through lives unchanged by the power of Christ. So he says, we're all in this. Don't mess up. Walk by the grace of God. So how does this apply to you? Frankly, I think some of you who are not elders have tuned out a while ago. You ought not have because this applies to your heart. Three action verbs for you of application. The first is to to examine. Examine your own life. Do you want someone else to be stamped by the example that you set in life and speech and conduct? And we all say, well, there's lots of need for improvement. Absolutely. Absolutely. By God's grace, pursue that growth and become that man and man or woman that God designed you to be so that you can impact and influence others. Those you have influence over in the church, would it be good for them if in 20 years they look like you do right now? This is what you're called to be as an example. Second action verb of application is to keep Keep, examine, and then keep. This is a high standard for ministers of the gospel. And it's not just spoken to Titus. It's recorded in the New Testament for the church. And the church in all ages has suffered under poor leadership because the church 
refuses to keep the word of God and deal with leaders who won't. And so I'm saying to you, you must not ever tolerate a man in the position of elder or shepherd whose life does not uphold the message. Do not put up with it. Mercifully, graciously, lovingly, and courageously deal with it. And God in his kindness will show you how, if ever that needs to be done here. We tend to to elevate men to their level of competence. We tend to be drawn in by their gifts. And if in their giftedness they can still have ministry, we can overlook the offenses of their character. Don't do that. That's not the standard of Titus 2. The standard of Titus 2 is not, can he hold people's attention? Can he make some kind of impact for 20 minutes? No, the standard of Titus 2 is, does he have a life that is shaped by his message, that is transformed by grace? And, then the th- and I say that because I, I know of churches who put up with ungodly leaders because of their skill set. Don't ever let that happen. Don't ever let that happen. Third action verb is to pray. It's to pray. This is a sober call from a sober man, Paul, at the end of his life. He's basically saying to Titus, listen, you have a target on your chest. And if you mess up, you're going to do damage to the church, to all of us. And he says in 2 Timothy, he lists names of guys who have, who've walked away from the faith and caused damage to the church. God's not hindered by that. His work goes forward. Paul says, don't be that guy. And so we beg of you as elders, shepherds, pastors, pray for us. Pray that we would be kept from evil. Pray that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Pray that our minds would daily be renewed by the truth of God. That we would be transformed from the inside out by the grace of God alone. Pray that we would kill sin, that we would give it no cover in our lives. Pray that God would show us where we are doing that right now because we are not perfect men. Pray that God would make clear to us areas that we need to pursue maturity of character and pray for grace-fueled godliness in all of the men and I would say all of the women God's entrusted to have influence in the church body in the ways and the positions that he's called them to do. May God help us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for the beauty and the glory of your word and the power of it to change us, to instruct us, and, and to make us new in Christ. We pray that you would help us to leave from here committed, determined by your grace to walk in a way that pleases and honors you and makes known the power of the gospel we, we know that has regenerated our own hearts. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God's grace to you, we're dismissed.